You're listening to In Network, Nordic's podcast series where we explore healthcare and technology with experts from around the globe. Hello and welcome to Designing for Health. I'm Dr. Craig Joseph, Nordic's Chief Medical Officer. And I'm Dr. Jerome Pagani, Nordic's Head of Thought Leadership. We recently sat down with Dr. Lyle Berkowitz, the CEO of KeyCare. A self-proclaimed doctorpreneur with a biomedical engineering degree from Penn and an MD from the University of Illinois, Dr. Berkowitz has been a healthcare force to be reckoned with since he started practicing internal medicine at Northwestern. Over the last three decades, he's been a serial entrepreneur, starting such companies as HealthFinch and Rise Health. He's also served on numerous boards and advised and invested in startups. Dr. Berkowitz is a thought leader on healthcare innovation, digital health, and virtual care, and he champions continuously improving how people receive and interact with their care. Currently, he serves as a CEO and founder of KeyCare, an Epic-based virtual care platform designed to help health systems improve access and quality by expanding their virtual care options for patients. In today's podcast, Dr. Berkowitz shares his views on how healthcare can adopt an innovation mindset and what healthcare can learn from the gaming industry. And he also talks about ways in which human-centered design can help improve chronic care management and how sad and fat are key to saving the healthcare system. Let's plug in. Jerome and I are here talking with Dr. Lyle Berkowitz. How are you doing this morning? I'm great. Looking forward to the discussion. Awesome. So your background applies uh, multiple aspects of what we're interested in talking about. You've got an academic background. You've practiced clinically for a long time, and you're also an entrepreneurial doctor, which you've kind of leveraged for multiple experiences. It's true. I've uh, I've been very fortunate. I actually call myself a lazy doctor. People say, oh, you're so busy with stuff. I'm like, all I'm trying to do is figure out how to get stuff off my plate that I don't think a doctor necessarily should do. How do we automate things? How do we delegate things? And as it happens to make those things spread and scale, a lot of times you need some type of business solution that allows it to have a a uh, financial incentive model that can spread. And I've been fortunate to stumble into a lot of things in my life that, that lets me explore that. Well, and your, your background is a little unusual in that uh, your undergraduate degree is in biomedical engineering. I thought everyone that wanted to go to medical school had to be a biology or a chemistry major. You know, about a third of biomedical engineers will go on to med school. I've actually met a lot of folks in the innovation and informatics space who do have an engineering and often a biomedical engineering background. So it's, it's not quite as unusual as someone would think, but it certainly sticks with me as engineers. We're, we're just problem solvers, right? And so I remember as a med student, you know, asking a lot of questions. And I remember that some doctors hated that I asked a lot of questions or challenged what was the dogma that they said, this is how we do it. And yet others, liked it. And I was fortunate in that this is now what the, you know, sort of early 90s period when uh, because I had computer experience, at the time that meant I could go and use the CD-ROM for Medline, some of the doctors really favored me because I could do research and do other things and they were intrigued by technology and others absolutely hated that I would ever question anything. And so I learned early on the, the something I tell my kids is a secret to happiness in life is to knowing that you can't please all the people all the time. And you know, I got some doctors who were great mentors and supporters and others who shot arrows at me. 
So do you think your education, your medical school and residency were significantly different because of your engineering background or the way you thought, which might have been a little different than most of your colleagues? Yeah, I, chicken and the egg. My, my mom said there's a Yiddish term that they used for me when I was young that said he wants to know from whence it came. I would always take things apart and look at things and a lot of us, you know, now and later. So did I learn stuff in engineering or did I go to engineering because that's how I was? I can't say for sure, but yes, I think that more than anything else, my understanding of what computers could do as an engineer, of course, you know, I, I learned how to computer program starting in high school and into college. And that was a significant factor. And perhaps just my, my mental thinking, I, you know, I spent a lot of time on mathematical modeling, thinking through processes, and you know, it just becomes part of you as an engineer. And so I have to think that made sense. And then the folks that I worked with at undergrad introduced me to folks in med school, uh, the professor's med school, and I became you know, a research assistant for someone who's a fantastic influence on in my life, a guy named Arthur Elston. He founded the Society for Medical Decision-Making. And that parlayed into doing research with him on how do computers help doctors make medical decisions and what's the essence of medical decision making and all of that was a big influence on me over the years to come. So that's actually a really interesting place to dive in a little bit because you wrote an entire book about how to get value out of technology that's being brought into healthcare, specifically around the EHR. Why couldn't we just reproduce what we had been doing on paper and use the EHR for that? One of the analogies I use to start with is video games. When I was a kid, I, and perhaps you, played a game called Dungeons and Dragons. It's a fun game. It was paper-based. You had graphs. You rolled dice, etc. We used our imagination, and we made something happen. Years later, when the computer industry came and the gaming industry came, they did not simply take that piece of paper and say, let's have a computerized version of a graph paper and, and some dice. They recognize the power of the computer to expand and create this three-dimensional world that allowed for a lot of usability and interesting ways to do things. And yet, what happened in the EHR world was that we literally just took the piece of paper and turned it into a computer. Paper's really good at being paper. Computers are not really good at just being paper for things like this. We lost a big opportunity. I did a talk a number of years ago at the Mayo Clinic Center for Innovation in their conference and said the biggest mistake we made was we didn't bring in designers when we did the EHR. What did we do? We let engineers go to doctors and say, what should this look like? And they pulled up their paper records and said, make it look like this. And we listened to them. And we did a really good job of listening to them. But designers know you don't just listen to people. You watch them, you observe them, you understand them, and you get the essence of what they're trying to do. And then in the case of computers, you take advantage of all the things that computers can do. And we failed. Um, we did not do that. Uh, and we're living with that to this day. You know, Some of the things I've tried to do are to say, how do we use the EHR as a platform? How do we overlay on top of that? But we're going to be living with that early mistake for years. And I'm, I always look for companies that figure out how to really use human-centered design and thinking through how do we use technology to make life easier for doctors and better for patients at the same time. So can you give us a few examples of where that's been done well? Somebody has taken the principles of the way that people interact with technology, recognize that it's very different from the way we interact paper, uh, paper and pencil, 
and, and apply that in a healthcare setting successfully. Let me give you a couple examples. One is information visualization. I love that concept, that tool where you can take lots and lots of data and, and summarize and make it very easy to see. We've seen that in, in other industries. I think we've just you know, starting to see that uh, in healthcare, but you know, the most obvious one would be you know, using AI and other techniques to improve our radiology imaging. So to make it more obvious to radiologists if there's a, a problem, an issue, to recreate tons and tons of data that we get from, I mean, even the, the CAT scan is essentially taking a bunch of slices of data and representing it differently, and now we're into 3D. A second opportunity was a company I started years ago called Healthfinch. And in that, what we did was said, uh, if something is rules-based, then you should be able to automate and delegate it in healthcare. And we did that for refills. And we said, look, if a refill request comes in, and it's an if-then statement, this is my computer brain thinking, then you don't need a doctor. If the refill you know, is for this medicine and the patient has been seen in the past six months and their labs are okay, then okay to refill until this period. You don't need a doctor for that. You can delegate that down to a staff member. If the refill request that comes in is a duplicate that was sent an hour ago by the same pharmacy, which often happens, then, you know, just ignore it. Again, now we're automating something and that saves doctors time. And this is, again, not rocket science. Some of the stuff is relatively easy. And yet in our world, we didn't do that for years. All we do is send everything to the doctor and say, hey doctor, you figure everything out. You be the computer. And to me, that is you know, a huge waste of time and resources when we have our most important, most educated person doing stuff that is rules-based. It just doesn't make sense to me. I hear a lot of that. The way to, to begin to think about technology is introducing efficiencies for things that are rule-based, be able to help doctors save time, triaging, imaging for radiologists is a, another great example. You mentioned how good AI has, has gotten at helping to do that. And there also seems to be, and I think you're touching on it, sort of a we're, we're storytellers, right? People respond to stories, they store information and, and that sort of story format. And it's, there seems to be a little bit of a role there as well. I mean, you touched on it with the video games, you know, it wasn't just paper and pencil and dice anymore. Now there was a rich narrative that people could interact with and, and create a different experience. Yeah, imagine if when you walk into a room, instead of seeing you know, what looks like a Word and Excel document for all the data, that it looks like a video game and your patient is represented and he's fighting off the evils of diabetes and hypertension and you're helping him with that. And, and yes, the computer is listening to you and understanding what's going on and you and the patient can together, you know, gamify and have fun actually managing. I mean, how cool would that be? But no one's gone there. And yet that is how the gaming industry and, every, and many other industries have thought about how to do these things. The big picture, I, I often talk about my sad philosophy to make doctors happy and patients healthy. And that's how do we simplify, automate, and delegate routine, repeatable, rules-based care and a combination of AI, information visualization, using rules to automate, delegate, all these things come into play. And if we, if we do that right, then you know, doctors will enjoy coming to work. You know, patients will you know, have a way to be able to explore and work within the health system in a way that actually not only makes sense, but can actually be fun. So that's that's the ultimate goal. So th that's interesting that you brought up a SAD. Jerome and I are focused on making healthcare work for humans. 
And you've written about this and thought about this both at the macro level and at the micro level. The micro level, talking about how to help an individual doctor via your, your sad philosophy. At the macro level, at the health system level, you also have a, an interesting acronym, FAT. Yeah, so I, so I say to save the health system, we need to get sad and fat. So what does fat mean? I spell it F-A-A-T-T, and that's how to use financial incentives, artificial intelligence, automation, telehealth, and teamwork. Yeah. To me, these are the, the elements that will let us better utilize um, our doctors, our technology, et cetera, and get to a place where I often say, we don't have a shortage of physicians, we have a shortage of using them efficiently. Uh, every other industry, banking, entertainment, commerce, travel, et cetera, has figured out you know, how to use self-service automation, computers, et cetera, to simplify things. And you only need the expert you know, if there's something unusual going on. And, uh, and uh, so I think that uh, is a way. And of course, I'm a doctor, so we need acronyms. This is how we remember things. Um, we have so many different acronyms in our life. So I, I did not start out trying to come up with something that was sounded like the opposite of what we usually recommended, but sometimes people remember that better. So yes, let's get sad and fat and save the healthcare system. I think that's that's good advice. So you've taken some of these principles and, and applied them to companies that you started. You, you referenced HealthFinch earlier, which was yes. mostly automation, taking things that we really don't need doctor's insights for and delegating those either to someone else or to let the computer do it yourself. Your most recent company that you just started is KeyCare. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how you're taking some of these principles and plowing them into the company? Yeah, so KeyCare was started with a premise that, you know, particularly with COVID, the demand for virtual care you know, went up immensely during 2020 uh, because of COVID. Health systems went from doing a very small portion to a you know, majority of telehealth in the nation. They went from you know, what would be a couple million a year to 200 million visits, et cetera. And the truth is that that is, some people will say it's, you know, the genie's out of the bottle, whatever you want to call it. Patient demand continues to be high. This is something that works, that makes sense. Doctors recognize, okay, this works as well. However, for most health systems, their doctors, you know, are ready to go back to the office. They are, in many ways, officeologists. They are used to the benefits and pleasure of working in an office. Everyone in the office is geared around making the doctor's life easy, and it makes sense for them, and that's what they're trained to do. Whereas virtualists are a whole different breed of doctors, similar to how we have hospitalists in the 1990s come up. Virtualists now are doctors, providers who are not only used to doing things online, but also understanding that, the, you know, that there are pros and cons of that. Much easier access for the patient. Maybe you'll have a little less information because you're not in front, but there's still plenty of ways to take care of, and it's, it's particularly good for more routine type of care. So we said, well, for the health systems to do this, you know, I could either create this wonderful platform that's trying to optimize around virtual care and then figure out how to integrate with all the health systems. But again, I'm a lazy doctor. I don't want to have to start from scratch. And I look around, I say, well, hey, you know, over 60% of health systems in the US are using Epic. And I don't need to start from scratch. Why don't I get the platform that everyone's using? And the truth is, I was, I was talking to friends at Epic and seeing if there's anything I could do to help in helping them uh, work with health systems to improve virtual care. And it, this idea just bubbled up and made sense. 
So we basically have started this company where we have an instance of Epic and we are loading up with virtualists, optimizing our Epic instance for virtual care and optimizing our Epic instance to serve other Epic sites because Epic actually has very good interoperability between two Epic instances so that not only is data transferred bi-directionally, but another Epic instance can use technology Epic's created, called telehealth anywhere and book anywhere, to schedule appointments. There's ability to move orders and messaging, et cetera, across two instances. So all of a sudden, we can support other Epic sites. We can actually support non-Epic sites as well using standard interoperability functionality, but it's particularly attuned right now to other Epic sites. And the result is that the experience is much more seamless for patients. You know, we are of service to the health systems. We're not trying to create our own brand. We want patients to go to their health systems. We feel health systems are extremely important and still be able to access virtual care options 24-7 that the health system themselves might not be able to offer. And the result is not only a better experience, but better quality because data is shared because we felt the fundamental issue of good telehealth is not having a good video experience. It is having the ability to talk to or work with a, another provider and ensure that the data is being shared so that they can make the most appropriate decision and anything that they do is transferred back to the primary care providers so that they know what's going on. The pandemic was a big driver of technological adoption, but as you mentioned, innovation is happening in other industries outside of healthcare all the time. But healthcare is by nature a little bit conservative. So how do we get that innovation mindset into healthcare? Well, I do worry sometimes a lot of health systems fall into the trap of being victims of their own success. When demand outreaches supply, you don't really have to think about, do we have to do things better? We just try and deal with the demand. What I think, and one of the reasons we create KeyCare was not simply to take a few visits you know, virtually, but to really help health systems fundamentally rethink how they manage a population. I don't think of KeyCare as a telehealth or virtual care company as much as I think of it as a population health enablement company. And the idea is how do we take as much of the routine care as possible in the big population pyramid and automate and delegate as much as possible to a partner like KeyCare so that we, in the end, want to be able to go to a doctor, primary care even specialty doctor, and say, hey, how would you feel if we can increase your salary, because you're the executive at the top of the pyramid, decrease the number of patients you have to see in person every day, and enable you to see a larger panel and improve the quality. Would that be okay with you? Every doctor in the system would probably say, yes, that would be great. What's the catch? We say, well, the catch is you've got to go back to yeah, sad and fat. You've got to embrace the idea of team-based care. Um, and feel comfortable using analytics and other technologies to understand your population, to understand who needs to see you today and who is okay being monitored via remote patient monitoring, who is okay to do a visit with a partner that might be a lower level provider based on rules that perhaps you've created. How do we get the doctor to be the top of that skill set? How do we do what every other industry has done. Again, think about banking and consulting and many other industries and put the doctors, the CEO of their panel. And how do we think about increasing the panel size you know, from a typical primary care of 2,000-ish to 5,000? 
Because if we do that using this technology and these philosophies, everybody wins, right? You've got patients have easy, convenient access. What I think I hear you saying is using those data to generate the kind of insights that allow everyone to operate at the top of their license while improving the patient experience and their outcomes. Correct. So we start with exactly that premise. You know, we understand the patient better. And we understand, by the way, and this is some human-centered thinking, we understand that patients are different in different situations. When they have a routine issue, they're often quite happy with having a convenient, commoditized experience, just like booking an airline ticket, right? You don't need to talk to anyone. But you want to do a, you know, an amazing experience to Bali or Greece, you're more likely going to talk to a travel agent. If you have a complex medical problem, you want to be able to talk to your doctor. So patients win both ways. They have an easy issue. They go online, take care of it as quickly and easily as possible. Some combination of self-care, virtual care, etc. The more complex problem, though, they know, hey, my doctor's going to be available for me. I'll be able to do a virtual visit with my doctor or get into the office to see my doctor because they have more openings because they are not being overwhelmed by all the routine stuff at the bottom of the pyramid, right? In the same time, the doctors, you know, now their life is getting easier, but they're getting appropriately compensated for you know, building a big panel. The health system's happy because whether they're fee-for-service or value-based, a large panel size always works out. In a fee-for-service world, large panel size means you know, more uh, overall downstream revenue. In a value-based world, of course, bigger panel size, you know, larger capitated payments. So Lyle, you wrote the book on innovation in healthcare. And one of the chapters, you talk about an inflection navigator. And you use the terms uh, black hole and fire drill, which is curious in a book about healthcare and innovation. So could you talk a little bit more about what an inflection navigator is, what's an inflection point, and, and how black holes and fire drills are related? Yes, uh, so a lot of times I, I, I do like language that sort of explains things. So this now gets back to my engineering background, right? Every engineer knows what an inflection point is. Everyone who you know took you know, math in high school might remember an inflection point is where there's a sudden change, uh, right? And I saw this as a primary care doctor for 20 years. Someone would be going along, everything's fine, and then boom, you know, they have appendicitis, they break their leg, uh, they you know, have some abdominal pain, a CAT scan finds liver cancer. All of a sudden, overnight, in a matter of minutes, your life completely changes. That's an inflection point in your health. And at that point, your healthcare needs go up dramatically. At that point, your quality and you know, quick access to someone is extremely important. And yet, what we often find is that during this fire drill, not everything goes as smoothly as you'd want, even though we know exactly what should happen. There are very specific things that should happen when you have you know, a heart attack, get diagnosed with cancer, find some abnormal lab finding. Why does that not always happen? Because sometimes people are moving too quickly, they forget things. People are fallible. Computers are much less fallible. And when there's a checklist approach, which our friend Dr. Atul Gawande has highlighted, et cetera, same idea, doesn't have to just be for surgery, it can be for medical issues as well. And so I brought that approach in because otherwise, sometimes you fall into a black hole. And the black hole is where not everything gets done, things get missed, people forget things, etc. And so the inflection navigator was based on when something bad happens, we assign a navigator, not a licensed professional, you know, a coach of some sort, could be a nurse, but not a doctor, to make sure 
these five things happen. So if you get diagnosed with cancer, there are certain things that can and should happen in a short period of time. And we actually focused on a couple issues. One was cancer in general, another one was hematuria, blood in the urine. When you have red blood in your urine, that's a significant change and often is related to a, a diagnosis of cancer. And if you don't take it seriously, if you don't get everything done in a short period of time, you know, there's a risk to that. And so we created a checklist. And in that checklist was as soon as a patient had that, you could initiate this in inflection navigator system with one order in our EMR. And that would then set off a chain of events that ensured you got a, the, a CAT scan, the right type of CAT scan for that condition, that you would have a follow-up with a urologist, that you would have urine sent for cytology, and that in you know, two weeks after this process started, you would get a call from a nurse to make sure everything happened. We actually published a paper. As a result of that, we were able to decrease the length of time it took to get a final diagnosis, which was much of the time cancer, by a month. And that month could be life savings at time. And it just decreased the chance that something would get missed, that something would get delayed. We've talked a little bit about human-centered design. Can you give us an example of a principle of human-centered design that's been successfully applied to the management of chronic diseases? And I'm thinking here of that principle of uh, starting with the end user in mind. Yeah, the, the front line is extremely important, you know, whether it's the patient, the doctors, et cetera. And what's also important is in not simply asking them you know, what they think, asking what they feel, watching them and seeing what they do. <laughs> is that consistent with what they say and what their feelings are? And in the end, clarifying what problem are you solving for them because people aren't going to change their behavior if you're not solving a problem for them in some form or fashion. And the more you understand the essence of who they are, who they are, what they think, what they feel, how they act, etc., that will help us solve a lot of things in healthcare from designing EHRs to improving diabetes to any other sorts of care that we provide to them. So you've been talking about being on the front line and you had said it's very important for you to get in to see what the patient is doing at home because sometimes the story changes a little bit when you're actually able to see. That sounds very similar to me to these innovation safaris that you have gone on. And I would love to hear you tell us more about what an innovation safari is and how it helped you and the patients. I mentioned I was part of this group called the Innovation Learning Network. We met twice a year and we learned about innovation techniques. We shared stories about innovation from new techniques and wins to getting abused sometimes for trying to, to change something. But we also went on innovation safaris. And this is where you go to places that are different than healthcare. They're non-healthcare related. And you learn about how they think about innovation, how they, and they may not call it innovation. They may just simply be part of how they work, how they improve things, et cetera. As an example, you know, a group went to a NASCAR garage and found that at the NASCAR garage, every single piece of equipment, every nut and bolt that went into a car had your initials on it, whoever put it on, right? That's accountability. You know, that is accountability. You want to talk about accountability, think about that. So if that something broke, you know, you know who screwed that in. And of course, they had incredible efficiency gains from how they figured out how to work together as a team. So you take from that. We looked at the Tom Shoes, right, who have this marketing campaign, buy one and we'll give one to someone uh, less fortunate. 
And that drives people to do something they might not normally have done. And we said, how can that be applied in healthcare? You know, we've seen Walgreens do that with vaccines, where you get a vaccine and we'll give it to someone less fortunate. We said, what if we can do it with colonoscopies? You get a colonoscopy and we'll make sure someone less fortunate gets one. Like there are triggers that help you feel better about doing something for yourself if you know it benefits others. We go to Nordstrom's and talk about customer service. I actually did this here in Chicago with executives from Northwestern and you know they loved it, right? Because the type of customer service you get at a place like Nordstrom's is incredible. And we think as a health system, oh, patients first, we'll give great customer service. We learned a lot that day um, when we learned how they empower their people and individuals to make decisions that are right for the end user and how do we take that into healthcare. So it's a great thing to do. Every health system out there can and should be thinking about you know, all the businesses in their community. You can learn something from all of them, guarantee you, every day. They may not think they're innovative, but they're doing something that you can learn. So tell me more about the innovation program that you created at Northwestern. So around 2005, I was asked by my group to help set up our executive health program. I was known in my group for doing new things, being willing to be that guy who's just willing to take on the new things. So I was happily excited to do this and help set it up. In the course of that, I met some really interesting folks who, of course, were executives. And I met this one guy, Peter Solozzi. He was one of my favorite patients ever. By the time I met him, he unfortunately had been diagnosed with some cancer and heart issues, et cetera. He's only like 55, you know, the age I am now. Peter has asked me to share his story and uh, has since passed. But at the time when I met Peter, he was essentially the chief innovation officer, uh, even though he didn't have that exact title, for a local businessman. And he was just inherently one of the most innovative people I've ever met. And he was always challenging. He would say, don't tell me what you can't do. And he and I would meet almost every week because he had so many issues. And we would, so the cancer folks would change one things and would affect his diabetes and his heart, and et cetera. And every week we would fine tune him. And every week I'd hear about these horrible stories of having to navigate the system. And the idea of the inflection navigator came out because he himself had suffered because they didn't diagnose his renal cancer quickly enough. The idea of you know, the cancer um, care in general, heart disease, a lot of the things I did were actually based on this one human being who was meaningful to me, who had a lot of experiences, and always asked, how could this have been done better? And he wanted to make sure others did not go through all the inefficiencies and issues that he went through. And when he passed, you know, we had spent a year or two you know, just always trying to talk about how to improve the system. Some of his friends and colleagues provided funding for us to start what became the Solozzi Healthcare Innovation Program. We called it the SHIP program, and that was one of the earlier innovation programs uh, in health system in the U.S., and it enabled me to actually have the time and some money to learn about innovation. That was a springboard for me to go out, join the Innovation Learning Network, take courses, and learn about human-centered design, and understand that innovation is both a concept but also a science, and how do we bring that into healthcare, and how do we think differently. And that funding it continues to enable us to do new things and springboard and educate others. Uh, one of the things we did, for example, was pull our process improvement team who initially said, well, this seems just the same. But we recognized the real difference was there were some new tools and techniques that we could incorporate to process improvement. But the essence was a process improvement team takes a process that's working well and tries to make it better. It's 95%, let's make it 99%. A 
innovation team, particularly process innovation, is a team that takes something that is not working and just starts from scratch and tries to do it over. And that essence was a different way to look at things. So there were processes that the process innovation team could not fix or could not improve because they were just so bad to start with that it wasn't actually something that just needed the, the fine tuning that they could do, the Six Sigma type of work, even lean work. And in those cases, we just say, hey, let's start from scratch and let's rethink something. And so it brought into Northwestern these new concepts and ideas. And I'll be forever grateful to Peter for really helping me take sort of my energies and the, the concepts that I, I knew sort of been thought about inherently and really learn and think about them more, have a human who could help me think about exactly how we could improve it as well as eventually you know, take my fate into this, this new world. So we've talked about a few examples already of how you've applied user-centered design techniques to patient care. Are there any other insightful examples that you could share with us? So one of my favorite projects was what we called the Extreme Diabetes Project. And it bothered me that a number of my patients had poorly controlled diabetes. They had a hemoglobin A1C consistently over nine. And to the, the medical professionals, that means that's poor control. It should be under seven. Yeah, seven to eight is, is, is poor control. Eight to nine is worse control. Over nine really is just really, really bad control. Um, and yet these patients seem to be feeling okay but we knew that their long-term prospects were not great. And I wanted to understand what the heck was going on. I was at a conference for the Innovation Learning Network, which was a nonprofit consortium that I was involved in, and we learned about something called video ethnography. And that is where you go in and you interview a small number of people and videotape them, take notes, etc. And from that relatively small sample size, you're actually able to get some really good conclusions. So I said, let's do this. And so I funded a project internally at Northwestern, and I asked my colleagues to nominate some of their patients who had a consistent hemoglobin A1C over nine and who'd be willing to talk to us. And we would you know, pay them a little money. We would go to their house because going to the front lines, whether it's talking to doctors, nurses, or patients, it's all about the front lines. We would go to their house, we would videotape we would have a professional interviewer ask some consistent questions, and we'd see what we learned. And that's what we did. So we had about eight patients who agreed to this uh, as, as what we needed, and we went to their, you know, their homes. Uh, I went once as a, uh, not as a doctor, but simply as a uh, photographer. I took a couple pictures, right? And we learned so much. The interviewer was great, and they would ask them, do you understand what diabetes is? Do you understand that you have diabetes and that's not well controlled? And you know, I remember one of the first ones we went to and talking about this and say, well, do you, you know, do you take care of yourself? Oh yeah, I've got an exercise machine. And like we pan the camera over to literally the exercise machine covered with layers of clothes, like no way that that's getting used, right? But if they answered in another setting, we'd say, oh great, he's, he exercises. And then they pulled all these together and they spent a couple of weeks distilling it down to a number of themes. And then I invited, of course, my team, but also a variety of folks from our endocrinology diabetes clinic, um, from our engineering school, et cetera, to sit down and listen and then break out into work groups and brainstorm based on the themes that we found. And the themes we found were this. When we asked patients about diabetes, and do you understand what diabetes is? We assumed, of course, they don't understand it because otherwise they take it more seriously. 
we were wrong. They all, under, oh, diabetes, yeah, your glucose is high. Do you understand what can happen? Yes, it can affect your organs and your kidney and other things and you could die earlier. I'm like, oh, so they understand it. But then we asked, do you understand that you have diabetes? Well, my doctor says I've got a touch of diabetes uh, and they're worried about, but I'm, I feel fine. And it hit me, oh my God. We talk about hypertension as a silent disease. Diabetes in many cases is a silent disease. For whatever reason, not every patient has a lot of symptoms. And then we you know, really started to brainstorm around this, this fact and came up with ideas. We don't need to scare patients about how bad diabetes is. One, they know it. Two, they don't respond well to that. What we did instead was created a very simple piece of paper that said, know your numbers. Green, yellow, red. Hemoglobin A1C. All we're going to do is focus on that. Keep it simple. If you're number is nine above that, that's red. That really is important. You have to discuss that. You have to think about going on medication for that, et cetera. And we instituted that. Uh, we also came up with ideas, uh, idea of a diabetes tune-up project where we would nominate a patient you know, with poorly controlled diabetes to go in and meet with our diabetes clinic, the diabetes educator, the endocrinologist, adjust their medicines, learn and understand, and most importantly, the use of a continuous glucose monitor. Today is being used more frequently, but 15 years ago was not being used frequently. We had to get special permission, essentially, from the insurance company to pay for it, because when patients saw what their glucose was consistently, it made a difference. And in the end, this is the essence of human-centered design. We didn't go in thinking we understood everything. We asked the end user what they thought about stuff and what was going to make a difference for them. So. Lyle, we've been talking about how to make healthcare work for humans, and we've had some great examples from you about what's happening within healthcare. What are up to three examples of a process or an experience or a product that sits outside of healthcare that are so well designed that it just brings you joy? So I'll tell you one uh, is one of my favorite apps. I'm surprised more people don't have this. It's called Captio. The app is so simple. All it does is you open it up, you type whatever you want, and it emails whatever you type to yourself. Because to me, that's easy, that's one step as compared to going in and pulling up my email, typing in my name, et cetera. I just, I'm an efficiency nut, and so I love that app. It's my favorite app, it's on my front page. I use it multiple times a day. Second is that my, you know, my friends and family make fun of me a little, but I love TikTok. I think TikTok is extremely well designed. Yes, it's a little addictive. I learn a lot and I actually apply this. I, I follow TikTokers who, you know, sometimes it's cooking or interesting historical events, sometimes some dad jokes, etc. But it's, it's fun for me and a downtime to be able to relax. It knows what I want. It's surprisingly good at doing that. Um, so I'm a big fan. The third, I have to say I'm a huge fan of Disney. Disneyland, going to Disneyland is one of my favorite things. I don't do it enough, but to be able to take my kids, etc., is is just it's a such a throwback and such a such a well designed place. That's it's one of my favorite experiences overall. Well, Dr. Lyle Berkowitz, thank you very much, a healthcare innovation expert. We appreciate your insights and uh, really enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, glad to share. Keep up the great work. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about KeyCare, go to keycare.org. We hope you enjoyed today's episode presented by Nordic. Check back for more episodes of Designing for Health wherever you listen to podcasts or on nordicglobal.com. 
Till next time, we'll see you in network.